You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. The backdrop of Matthew chapter 25 is all important to understanding this particular section of Scripture. Uh, On the week that Jesus was going to be betrayed, arrested, crucified on the cross, he's in Jerusalem with his disciples, rebuking the religious leaders, speaking into the national scene, And he says over Jerusalem and to the people at the close of chapter 23, your house will be left to you desolate. The disciples, upon hearing those words, say to Jesus in chapter 24, look at this incredible uh, temple. Look at this amazing and beautiful structure. What do you think of it? And Jesus announces to them, well, not one Stone will stand on top of another. All of them will be overturned, which of course did happen quite literally in 70 AD as a result of the Roman invasion. They then asked Jesus privately, well, what will be the sign of that event? What will be the sign also of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus shared with them about what I believe is the future coming of Christ. And at the close of chapter 24, gave them a warning to watch, to be ready, to be prepared for the coming of Christ. And a similar exhortation to his disciples flows on into chapter 25, verse 1. He says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So you have these 10 women who were involved in the process of the wedding ceremony in that ancient culture. And they go out to meet the bridegroom. And there were, of course, three stages of the wedding in those days. There was sort of the engagement time, the agreement, then the betrothal period where you were officially and technically married, so to speak, but the wedding had not been, the marriage had not yet been consummated. No wedding ceremony had occurred and there'd be a waiting for the coming of the bridegroom during a large window of time, you know, say a week or so, he could come to the town and to collect his bride and begin the feast and the celebration at any moment. And so these 10 virgins would get their lamps in preparation for whenever the bridegroom chose to come. Five of them, Jesus said, were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. 
And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Verse 12, but he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, my preference is not to overanalyze and overinterpret passages and stories and parables like this, partly because I don't know that I have the ability to do it, but partly because I think that Jesus is trying to communicate a singular and main message to his disciples, as is often the case with parable or parable-like teaching. And here you have this situation. They're asking the question, when are you going to come? When are you going to return? What will be the sign of your coming? He gives them a bunch of signs, tells them what it will be like at the end of the age, gives, gives them great warnings and tells them to watch, to be ready, to be faithful as servants with what has been entrusted to them. And these men would, of course, be responsible for the early era of the church. They would go out into all the world, make disciples of all nations. They would preach to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This was the apostolic band. They had a great commission that Christ had given to them. But he's telling them to be ready. And in telling them to be ready, he gives them a picture. He says, imagine a wedding, right? You've got in that era, the bridegroom could come at any moment. It could be in the day or it could be at night. I mean, how adventurous. It just made things so exciting, so wonderful. It was just a set period of time. It wasn't, you know, at 1230 on such and such a date, the wedding will take place. It was more adventurous than that. And the bridegroom could come. In the night, he could come in the day. And so these attendants who were a part of the wedding ceremony, these ten virgins, five of them brought lamps with oil. Five of them brought lamps without oil to replenish their lamps with. They all fell asleep. They all were tired and drowsy. They all heard the cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. They all rose they all trimmed their lamps, but the ones without the oil said to those with the oil, hey, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. The wise said, well, hey, if we do, then we won't, not, neither of us will have enough oil. So just go to the dealers and buy oil for yourselves. But they did not return in time. And so the marriage feast began and the door was shut to those five foolish attendants they were kept out. They knocked and said, Lord, open up to us. And he answered, I say to you, I do not know you. Really, the only difference between these two sets of people is that one had the oil and the other did not. One was prepared. The other was unprepared. One was living with expectation the other was not living with real, true, legitimate expectation. And what the Lord says in verse, 11, in verse 12 is, I do not know 
you. In one sense, you could say it very simply. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Having oil in your lamp means to know him, have a relationship with him, to be justified by faith, and not to be trusting any other thing. But in another sense, Jesus is just looking at his men, looking at his disciples and saying, hey, listen, live an expectant life. Live constantly expectant of the coming of Christ. Be a person who is wise, who is living a holy life. When he returns, you want to be caught not in rebellion, but caught doing his will. There are certain things that people do in this life that if you were to ask the question, would you like Jesus to return right now? The answer would be absolutely not. I don't want him to find me doing this activity or committing that sin. Instead, be busy about the things that you know you want to be. Live a holy life. These are people who realize that they are sojourners and pilgrims in this world and have a great hope in the return of Christ. As John said in 1 John 3, verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him, the hope that he'll see Jesus face to face, that he'll return at any moment, he purifies himself. Now the foolish ones, on the other hand, they looked good. They looked like they belonged. But when the rubber met the, ro met the road and it was time for action, they really didn't have the oil. Now, some will point out, and I think that there's probably this possibility in the interpretation, that oil is often a symbol of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. And so perhaps you have an allusion here or, an, or a reference to the fact that you have to be legitimately, truly saved. When you're born again, you receive the Holy Spirit. And so, and he becomes the down payment or the deposit for your salvation. These people without the oil, perhaps these are people who symbolically are those without the spirit of God within them, for they have not been truly born again. Jesus looks at his disciples in verse 13 and says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, in verse 14, Jesus moves on again in speaking to his disciples, giving them warnings about how to live their lives. And he begins to speak, them, speak to them of their service here in this world and how to live a life of faithfulness before the Lord. And there are a few things I want you to see from this parable from Jesus. He says, it will be like, and what is he saying when he says it will be? Well, he had said in verse 1, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So, again, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey, verse 14, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one, he gave five talents. A talent is a measure of money. To another two, to another one, to each according to his ability then he went away. And so you have the master giving talents to his servants. And at the end of all of this, the master is going to say to a couple of these servants, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But to one, 
he will have to offer a harsh rebuke. And I think one of the first ways to understand or to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant, is to, like these characters who receive the five and the two, to realize, first of all, that you are a servant. We're here in this life to serve. We have a stewardship. And so many people don't think about this reality. They think of their life as their own. Even believers just think of their life as their own. But your life under the blood of Jesus is no longer your own. It's been purchased. It's been redeemed. It's been bought. Your life does not belong to yourself. Your life now belongs to the Lord. And so it's so important to just, first of all, have the perspective, oh yeah, that's right, I am a servant. So he gives five, two, and one talent to each of these people. Your life is not your own. You're borrowing it. These talents do not belong to you. They belong to the Lord. He, verse six, who had received the five talents, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug it, dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, I think another wonderful lesson concerning being a strong servant that hears the word, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master is to simply accept whatever he entrusts into your care. You know, the guy with the two talents wasn't supposed to compare himself with the one with five. He was just supposed to accept what the master had determined for him to work with. And I think oftentimes people who serve the Lord live in a fantasy world where they have a difficult time embracing the situation that Christ has placed them into. There's constant comparison. Why didn't I get the five talents to work with kind of thing. But Jesus just looks at his guys and says, listen, one gets five, one gets two, one gets one. There is no explanation. There is no justification. There is no defense of this. He gets to do whatever he wants to do. And so just accept whatever the Lord has given to you and entrusted into your care, whatever your background is, your aptitude, your education, just embrace the talents, the treasure, the time that he has committed into your trust. I think we live in an era where the sin of, of comparison absolutely stunts growth, paralyzes ministry, and robs people of such joy. Now, after a long time, verse 19, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made you two talents more. Again, just like the one with five, he had doubled his master's investment. His master said to him, verse 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
It's important, of course, to notice here that both of these men received the same reward. They both doubled the investment. One took five and made it 10. The other took two and made it four. So we're dealing with different amounts of money, but they both doubled the investment. And the thing that they were both looking for, and I think this is crucial in order to, being, to be effective in this life, is that they were both serving for the pleasure of their master when he returned. When you serve for the pleasure of the Lord, it keeps you from doctrinal compromise. It keeps you from fear. It keeps you from being paralyzed by criticism. It enables you to just say, you know what? I am serving for the pleasure of the Lord. And these men received great eternal reward because of their faithfulness in this life. They were faithful over the little things. Now for eternity, they would be set over much. Now he also, verse 24, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. You know, at the very least, you could have put it in the bank, Jesus is saying. So, verse 28, take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, an ominous word from Jesus where he alludes to eternal punishment. So you have this third character. You know, he says, hey, uh, I took it. I buried your one talent and the master calls him a wicked and slothful servant. It is so important not to, to make sure that we don't bury what Jesus has given to us. You know, I think sometimes serving the Lord with your life can be a discouraging thing, can be an embarrassing thing. But to continue and to be faithful, to not let fear keep you and from what he has for you, don't bury the talent that he gave to you. And so Jesus here urging his disciples towards faithfulness, towards faithfulness in this life. You know, the fascinating thing to me in this particular parable is that the master said to his servants, you were faithful in the little thing. And now I will set you over much. This seems to be a reference to the coming age when we will rule and reign with Christ. And it often I've heard this parable used to show us that Jesus is preparing us for greater things here on earth. If we're faithful in the little things here, 
then he'll give us greater things to do here on earth, which is often true, but I don't think always true. But the thing that is always true is that there are little things for us to do here that seem so huge at times here. You know, maybe you're pastoring a large fellowship or you're leading a Bible study or you're leading someone to Christ. They seem like such big deals here in this world. But the reality is that they are so small and compared to the greater things that are found in the new heaven and the new earth. Again, Jesus is talking about the sign of his coming, the sign of the end of the age, speaking to them of a future kingdom. In one sense, what we could say is this life that we're living right now here on earth is merely the warm-ups for the grand event for all of eternity, serving the Lord, loving the Lord, leading with the Lord in his kingdom forever and ever. He said to these faithful servants, enter into the joy of the master. Now, when the son of man, verse 31, comes in glory and all the angels with him. So again, they had asked the question, what will be the sign of your coming? So here he says, when I come in glory and all the angels with me, he says, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That will be the time where he really is seated upon the throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So there will be a coming time when Jesus returns that there will be a judgment. There will be a separation of the good and the bad. Those who are righteous and those who are ungodly, wicked, unrighteous. Those covered by the blood and those who are trusting in their works. Those who are justified by grace and faith and those who have sought to be justified by their own merit or by their own philosophies and have created gods for themselves, they will be separated like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he, verse 33, will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Absolutely beautiful. These people who are signified by Jesus to be his children, the sheep, not the goats, he says, he calls them the blessed by my father. And he tells them there's this kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Inherit it now. For I was hungry, verse 35, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So Jesus lists all of these things at the Son of Man that he will say. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. And uh, the righteous, verse 37, these on his right side will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry 
and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, Jesus says, listen, there are these starving, lonely, sick, naked, imprisoned people that are out there in this world. These are not the heavyweights of mankind. These are not the people that others are rushing to know about and to love and to care for. They're the rejected. They're the abused. And when you take care of them, you visit them, you feed them, you clothe them, you help them with their healing, you encourage them, you cure their loneliness. It's like you've done it for Jesus himself. Just absolutely powerful to consider uh, this beautiful reality. He saw every act, every good deed, every wonderful thing that these people of his had done in this life. And then, verse 41, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Notice the eternal nature of this fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice the original intention of this eternal fire. Not for mankind, but for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, verse 42, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into, again, that word eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So again, these people, uh, maybe even they made proclamations of being believers but it really hadn't taken inside of their heart because they didn't really do anything for those who were hungry, those who were thirsty, those who were strangers and unclothed and sick and in prison. Their hearts were not moved. Jesus is not saying, by the way, that if you do these things, you can save yourself. This, these are just evidences of a person who has truly, legitimately been saved. There is faith that works. And obviously they had a defunct and stunted faith. It really wasn't real faith because they were not moved in any way to care for the people in this world. The judgment, by the way, of who are the sheep and who are the goats or who are the weeds and who are the tares and another of Jesus's parables, it belongs to him. There will come a day when we will all stand before the Lord and he will call out those who are righteous. He makes that judgment. It's not for me to make. It's his decision. 
But Jesus here warning his disciples and saying, listen, men, it's time for you in this next season to live a sober life, to live a life caring for the needs of others, to live a life of stewardship over what I've entrusted into your care. Live a faithful, watchful, zealous life because a day is coming when I will return. You asked me, what will be the sign of my coming? I gave it to you, but now I'm warning you, I will return. So live a life that is back in many senses, preparing for the day that is to come. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.